from Rheumatology Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is In Conversation Podcast. In 2020, researchers at Stanford University did an extensive literature review to devise what they called Presence 5, so five validated techniques that are proven to enhance connection and communication between doctors and patients. Shortly after their paper was published, COVID-19 pushed patients out of the doctor's clinic and onto a screen via telehealth. But we know that for both rheumatologists and patients, there are pros and cons to telehealth consultations. So the Stanford team went back to their research and adapted Presence 5 specifically for telehealth consultations. And they dubbed the adaptation Telepresence 5. And it's an approach that's validated to help bridge some of the distance created by not being able to consult face-to-face. So it's broadly relevant to all health specialisations. Joining us in conversation today is Professor Stephen W. Russell. He's also a doctor of medicine and works in the Department of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, USA. Professor Russell recently co-authored a paper in the Medical Journal of Australia about Telepresence 5. In conversation today, Professor Russell demonstrates how to talk a patient through a telehealth diagnosis for long-term shoulder pain. But before we get into that, Professor Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast, and uh, I'm excited to talk about telehealth. Well, maybe you could start with just giving us a quick overview of Presence 5, so the original research underpinning Telepresence 5. Right, and thanks for starting with that, because it was two years right before the pandemic began in January 2020, when researchers at Stanford University and colleagues of mine published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, in which they talked about ways that physicians can re-engage with their patients when they're in the exam room. Now, of course, at that point in time, we had no idea what was to come. At least we certainly didn't in our neck of the woods. But what we found from that paper, and this was based on interviews and research in the field, was that there are five things that physicians can do in order to prepare themselves for an interaction with the patient. Uh, The first was to prepare with intention. So just thinking about what you're going to be uh, doing in that exam space and what the patient might need. The second was listen intently and completely. And for perhaps other general practitioners like myself, that can be difficult at times when you're in a space with a patient. And yet there's so many other things that may be running through your mind, either with that patient or perhaps with other patients to come. The third was to agree on what matters most. So many people, myself included, will go in thinking, I need to make sure I talk about the blood pressure or the diabetes. And yet the patient may have some specific questions that she has. And so we want to make sure that those are addressed and that we're not just railroading through our list without hearing what the patient may need. And the final two, connect with the patient's story. So find some way to really not only listen, but make sure that the patient feels heard with the complaints. And then the final is explore emotional cues. So when a patient is seeming distressed over an issue that's happening at home or at work, really being able to acknowledge that and see if that might have some level of impact on her care. Right. So Presence 5 was based on lots of research that had been done and culling of the medical literature to try and really understand how physicians can be at their best being physically present when they're in a space with a patient. 
Two months later, when the pandemic hit the shores of the United States and made its way from west to east, since COVID, we realized that there was going to need to be a change in the way we conducted What's business. And of course, that wasn't unique to us. Physicians across the world experienced that. And the response in our area was with telemedicine or telemedicine, which has been, of course, the response across the world as well. And the researchers who put the original paper out realized that these five tools, these five modes of thinking are really transcendent upon many different ways in which physicians interact. So it's not just in the physical space with the patient, but when we switched to telemedicine, we realized that these same tools could be used in a digital space, in in a telemedicine visit that one might have uh, with their patient. And so really the concept is the same, preparing with intention. When there's not that physical presence with a patient, sometimes it's easy to get distracted. We all have experience with that, with the glass divide that's between ourselves and the person on the other end of the line. But being able to prepare and reset, take a moment to look at the patient's chart. Listening intently and completely is really hard to do when there's other things going on and you realize that the patient is not visibly in the looking at you through uh, through the exam room. And yet being able to focus on the camera of your device can be tremendously helpful for making that digital eye contact. Agreeing what matters most is very important, recognizing that telemedicine visits may be perhaps shorter or maybe not as much time devoted to uh, the visit. And because of that, some of the nonverbal cues that we might use in a physical space need to be aware. We need to be aware of those in the digital space. And then the final two, connecting with the patient's story. One benefit of telemedicine is that we were, for the first time, for many, many providers, myself included, invited into patients' homes. The vast majority of uh, training that I've done and then subsequent practice has been in a clinical space where the patients come to us. And yet with telemedicine, we had the opportunity to come to them where they were sitting to see their living room, perhaps to see their pets or plants in the background. It really gave us an opportunity to have a new way to connect with our patients. And then finally, exploring emotional cues. We all had a common experience and in many ways still do with how the pandemic has affected us. And so being able to acknowledge that and build upon that in the telemedicine space was really a new and innovative way to try and connect even when there's a digital divide. Oh, that's an excellent point. It's an excellent point because really it's true. You look at these things and you think, I learned that in my first and second year of medical school when I was learning how to examine a patient I love and learning you're what saying. the spleen was for and all but of those aspects of the fundamentals of medicine. Common sense approaches though. Why, why is there a need to write <laughs> journal articles about this? Exactly, exactly. And yet until that mirror is guidelines. held up for me, sometimes it's really hard to recognize that I've fallen away from some of the key fundamentals of medicine. I've been in practice almost two decades, and yet sometimes when the the time pressure is there or when I'm really pushed with other responsibilities, those fundamentals can really fall away. And so for me, as a practitioner listening to this research and learning from this journal article, I realized that there was probably more things that I could do to prepare, not just go into a patient's room, uh, sort of cold as it were, 
But to take a moment and look at the chart and say, ah, yes, Mrs. Jones, who's coming to see us, is the one who has the daughter that's doing training in Washington, D.C., and perhaps remember that connection. So other uh, practitioners have used ideas such as just before going into that space, put your hand on your mouse or on your laptop and just take a deep breath and let it out. And as simple as that seems for me, and I know for other of my colleagues, it really can be very centering on trying to make sure that you are fully present, even when there's a distance between you and the patient. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the aspects of wellness that really, for me, probably got pushed aside as I went farther in my career, as I perhaps had more patients on a given time than I may have had before. I realized that I just needed to get the work done to move on to the like next patient. And that's not what I went well into medicine for. for. And so the, the fourth pause that we had when we had to reconsider how we were going to practice present, medicine in the back. digital space yeah. really allowed me to reconnect with some of those uh, aspirations that I had when I first went into medicine. So fundamental, yes, very elemental, yes, but for me, very, very helpful in reconnecting with my patients. Absolutely. So in my line of work, I not only have my own general practice where I see patients of all ages, but I also teach in that space as well. So we have learners, mostly in the American system, graduate medical learners or those who are residents. And they're coming and I'm realizing that they're watching what I'm doing. They're not only learning about how to have check the blood pressure or how to, to treat do this hypertension, better since this research? they're also learning how do I interact with patients. And so this research for me gave me a chance to reset, recalibrate, and remember how to do things properly. And I hope, based on some of the feedback that I've gotten, that I was doing that beforehand. But when we're starting to teach and write about the telemedicine space, it was important for me to really take stock and to realize, am I doing the things I'm writing about? Am I practicing the best practices that I advise? Exactly. Yes. Yes, I think that's true. It's keeping you honest, yeah. but it's also keeping you humble to realize that Walking I may talk. be the professor in this situation, One of the, but I'm a learning a ton both from my students, both Republic from interactions with my patients, and doctor, for me, and, uh, being able to interact in a new way, such as a telemedicine space, really challenged my own digital really skills and technical skills, and so that's another way to really be humbled in that space, clinical, technical, medical skills. It is. It is. And we look at, I certainly did during my training, those who've come before us and those who are maybe more senior in their careers and realize that there's so many different things that they do that automatically establish a connection yeah, and I guess with it them. Is, and it's, it's interesting that in this landmark article, there were over being 30 and separate isn't identifications a because of tools it really that is. physicians That's use the channel and, and practices to out that can be helpful. How things and so it the took a really. while and several committees of experts to be able to boil it down and match that with the medical literature to be able to say, okay, what of these things are 
most important. And so, for instance, one of the ones that didn't get put in the telemedicine space is physical touch. And of course, you can't do that in the telemedicine space. And really, when you're in the clinical space, there's a lot of nuance in terms of how we physically examine our patients and how we physically interact with our patients in that space. And yet they were able to talk about making sure that you seemed as if you were physically present by one of the examples I used earlier, which is looking in the camera and really listening, doing that nonverbal communication of head nodding. And it's the thing that you and I might do if we were in the same room together. But when you may not have those same nonverbal cues, it, it really can make a difference. And so listening intently sometimes involves looking and sometimes involves just making eye contact with your patient. liaising with anyone in the health tech industry in the USA? I haven't been in particular working with one particular health tech industry. My colleagues, I have a colleague at Stanford who I was working with on this paper that was in the Medical Journal of Australia. And Stanford is in California and a hotbed for digital research and for Mm. internet connectivity. And so she and some of her colleagues have been engaging with some of them. One of my colleagues here more locally has been engaging with digital tech companies to figure out how we can get access to everyone. How can we be more equitable with our telemedicine? Because in our area of the States, we're a very rural area. Certainly the centers where our hospital is, is more urban, and we have a lot more opportunities for broadband access. But many of our patients live 30, 50, 100 miles from our area in areas where the broadband access has been very limited. So we do have some folks at my institution who've been working with digital companies to try and make sure that our broadband access and our infrastructure is more robust than it is when we started the pandemic. We're talking about using a video link with a patient. What does the research tell us about how effective that is in diagnosing different conditions? Well, one of the first things we recognized is that it is a fertile area for research. And I'll give you an example. So if a patient comes into my office with shoulder pain, I can use a series of physical exam maneuvers to be able to fairly reliably determine if that patient has a tear in one of their rotator cuff muscles of the shoulder, or if it's a tendonitis. Perhaps it's an overuse and something that might involve a different treatment plan. And there's well-established algorithms and pathways that physicians can use in the clinical space to be able to make that diagnosis. When the pandemic began and when my first engagement with telemedicine really took off, I didn't have any research to be able to look upon and to be able to point to, to say the telemedicine space is going to help me diagnose a shoulder exam. And yet some of those same tools that I would use by moving the patient's shoulder through certain ranges of motion and certain activities, we can get the patient to actually do that herself. And in her home, she can lift her shoulder above her head. And if she's unable to do that, we know what that means in the physical exam space. And we assume that that's going to be having similar information in the telemedicine space. Likewise, if we have a patient move their arm in a certain position, say in front of them, and we move that arm in a certain position, we have reliable data to say that can indicate an impingement of the shoulder muscles, which might lead us down one pathway or another. And so when we teach the patient how to do it herself, when we have her put her back against a chair, perhaps even holding her own shoulder blade. Well, talk me through it. Yeah. Let's do it now. Even though even though this is just audio, only a podcast, not sure how this will go, but let's give it a shot. Let's pretend, <laughs> let's pretend that I am a patient coming in with shoulder pain. 
Excellent. And let's uh, let's assume you've done that lovely connection. We've established that this is an issue for me. It's it's my concern, etc. Let's just jump to the diagnosis. Talk me through it. Yes. Okay. So, Wendy, you're coming to me and you have shoulder pain and it's been going on for three months. And so regardless of whether you and I are in the same room or in this example, we're in a telemedicine space, I can look back to a landmark article that came out in 2012 in the States. And it was actually in a it was in an orthopedic journal. And what we do with that article is we say there's three things with the information from that article. We say there's three things that I want to know about your shoulder right now. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to take your shoulder and I want you to lift it both arms above your head. In the United States, in American football, we would consider that a touchdown if both arms are going (laughs) above the head, right? The elbows are straight and the hands are up. If you cannot do that with one arm or if you can get it up there, but ask you to slowly lower it back down and the affected side just drops down, I'm worried that you have a tear in your shoulder. Now, that in and of itself is not enough. So I'm going to then ask you to say, all right, Wendy, I want you to pretend like you have a soda can in your hand. Yep. I want you to reach that soda can out with both hands. Now I want you to turn that soda can upside down and then lift up as if you're trying to make a big arc of the soda that's coming out of the can. If you're limited with one side of doing that with your affected side, or if it's too painful, that's another bullet point where I can say, aha, I'm really worried about that shoulder muscle. Mm. The final thing that I want you to do is I want you to sit in your chair and I want you to put your hands by your side, pretend that you've got a newspaper in front of you. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold with your right hand and your left hand and your elbows pressed by your side, but open it all the way to where your hands are almost as far apart as they can be with your elbows still Mm. pressing. If you're showing me tenderness or pain or limitations in doing that, I've got another bullet point. And while each of those bullet points may be limited when used in isolation, we know from this landmark article from 10 years ago that if you combine all three of those, and let's say each one is positive, you cannot lift your arm up or you can't hold it in control as you're dropping it, or you try and coat that can of soda out and it's too painful on one side than the other, or you can't lift one side out for the newspaper and you can for the other. I have three areas that I'm interested in now, two muscles that you've shown me and one range of motion. Mm. And so now I'm really suspicious that you have a tear. So the last thing I'm going to get you to do is I'm going to get you to take your elbow and lift it in front of you like you're pushing your thumb above your head towards the back. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I want you to keep that elbow straight so that your arm is as close to your ear as possible. And if you're unable to do that because of pain or because of limitations with tenderness, I've got my answer. If all three of those are present, you cannot lift the range of motion of your shoulder. You cannot have good strength in those areas that we're looking at on the affected shoulder. And you can't take that thumb up by your ear. What I'm describing is something called the NEARS test, because it's near your ear, one way to think about it, then each of those three takes your suspicion of having a rotator cuff tear from moderate to very high. Now, I want to flip that. So if each of those three are fine, yes, you can move your shoulder and it's sore, or you can open the newspaper or pour out the can of Coke. And yes, it's sore, but you can do it. And that nears test, your elbow near your ear can get all the way up there, maybe with some soreness, but not with limitations. I'm now thinking that you have a tendonitis. And I'm dating this back 10 years ago to this original study that was done by Murrell and colleagues. And what I'm now thinking is that's either going to lead me towards advanced imaging, you can't do any of the three, 
or towards physical therapy, stretches and strengthening. You can do all three, but they're sore. So in that one example, it took a little time to describe, but when that one example, what you do based on my instructions is very helpful for me. So we call that a patient-assisted physical exam. So I tell you what to do, you try and do it and replicate it, and I can judge based on your reaction and your response if that's something that is valid for moving down one pathway or another. Do you have any data around what devices are being used more commonly? Are they laptops? Are they iPads? Are they iPhones? Right. For the majority, I do. For the majority of our patients, we are finding that they're using their iPads or their phones. So they're using a tablet device or a phone device, which they're, most people are very familiar with in terms of being able to look at the camera in the eye, so to speak, and be able to have structures that they are now able to optimize that video. We have noticed, and this has been published more recently too in uh, one of our local journals here, that our older population, so those who are on Medicare in the States, those who are over age 65, are less likely to have some of those devices. So many times we have to partner with the patient's extended family. So we have a daughter or a son who will come in using their personal device to help mom or dad be able to engage in that telemedicine space. In Australia, we're also finding that that's useful in families and patients who come from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Yes, very much so. And we, uh, I can appreciate that, that that aspect is really novel and new way to be able to engage with patients. And we've found that really it brings a, a richer experience when we're able to meet on the patient's own area, when their home or their place of work. But we've also found that it helps us to partner with our patients. So when we are going through an exam and we're doing a patient-assisted physical exam, it's really an opportunity to break down some of those structural barriers or even some of those hierarchical barriers that might be present to be able to find something that is both jovial and and almost an icebreaker where we have the patient move her hand in such a way that uh, might seem silly at first, but we are able to now explain why we're doing this. I can tell you prior to the pandemic, there were many times where in spite of my fundamental training, I might have done something without sharing the patient what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I think in the telemedicine space, we're obligated to say, I'm now going to ask you to lift your hand above your head because when I do that, I'm looking for pain or tenderness here or there. And so in many ways, that particular example that we went through earlier now translates back into the clinical space. And so I'm now reminding myself, make sure that you're communicating why you're doing what you're doing so that the patients can partner with you in this aspect of the exam. It occurs to me that this great divide, the glass divide that you referred to earlier, that that is perhaps making doctors more patient-centred in some way, having to go that extra effort to connect because it is via video. I think so, because patients can tell really quite quickly when a physician is engaged in what's going on or when that person may be more distracted. So telemedicine has really given us an opportunity to lean forward with that engagement and making sure that we are both hearing and being heard, making sure that we're communicating and being able to summarize what the patient is communicating with us. The other aspect of this as well is we're starting to realize there are some visits that really don't need to have a shared clinical space in order to be useful. So if patients have access to some of their digital information at home, 
if they can gather blood pressures at home or blood sugar readings, we might be able to have a check-in based on a new medicine that was started and save the patient time and save the patient the travel that it may take to get to the clinic. And that's more efficient for them. It's equally effective for us. And we think that that also builds relationships and builds community with our patients. And it also is giving doctors that chance to pause, hand on the mouse, take a breath in and out, a bit of moment of self-care wellness between each patient. I think so. I think that's really quite a, quite a perceptive summary, and it really has been my experience as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that telemedicine is still in its infancy. So we spoke earlier about ways in which research can be helpful in confirming what we think we know. I think telemedicine has also exposed this digital divide that we've talked about and given us opportunities to be more equitable in our care. And you brought up a point earlier, which I think is is critically important in the States as well, which is there are going to be cultural differences in which the telemedicine space has to be adjusted somewhat, both for patient safety, for patient privacy, but also for patient cultural practices. And so it gives us an opportunity to be more responsive to what our patients need. Because quite frankly, before the pandemic, I think there were times where I had a one-size-fits-all approach for certain conditions and may have been less sensitive to some of the cultural needs of my patients. So as I mentioned earlier, I've been out of practice. I've been in practice for almost two decades, and yet I'm still learning. I'm still humbled by what I need to learn. And I'm now starting to find new ways to partner with my patients. Professor Stephen W. Russell, I appreciate your insights on Telepresence 5 and also appreciate the, uh, I guess, the humility of you coming in and saying, hey, I'm learning still after two decades of practice. So thank you for sharing all of that. Well, thank you, Wendy. This has been a pleasure for me. And I've also realized that there are some commonalities that we can learn across the world too. So certainly for your listeners in Australia, they're going to be teaching me new and creative ways in order to engage in this space, as perhaps I may have through this article that we've done. That was Professor Stephen W. Russell from the University of Alabama. You've been listening to Rheumatology Republic's In Conversation podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review. If you've got any tips or just want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. In Conversation is a production from the journalists at Rheumatology Republic. Visit us at rheuma.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.